Torah. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. It is said that the only thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history, but it is also said that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So today we're going to learn from history. Yes, and it's going to be a fascinating history indeed. Actually, a very troubling history. We're going to talk about a castle. A castle in West Africa. A castle where I have been. And a castle where I witnessed the history of one of the most horrendous events in the history of mankind. Today on Viewpoint, we're going to revisit that castle. It's called Elmina. Between 1482 and 1786, clusters of castles and forts were erected along a 600-mile coastline of the nation of Ghana. Back then, Ghana was called the Gold Coast due to its vast qualities and quantities of gold. Placed strategically as links in the trade routes established by the Portuguese in the 15th century, that is the 1400s, who were the first settlers on the Gold Coast, the forts thereafter were seized, attacked, exchanged, sold, and abandoned during almost four centuries of struggle between European powers for domination over the Gold Coast. But as early as the 1500s, the settlers' interest turned to the slave trade in light of the growing demand for human labor in the New World, primarily in the Caribbean, not America. From holding gold, gold, ivory, and other wares, the castles gradually imprisoned slaves, who were reduced to yet another commodity. From West Africa alone, it seemed that approximately six million slaves were shipped to other countries. On the seaboard side of the coastal slave castles was what is called the door of no return. I have seen the door of no return. It's frightening. A portal through which the slaves were lowered into boats and then loaded like cargo onto big slaving ships further out to sea. Elmina Castle, one of the most famous of the castles, Known as the oldest European structure in Ghana, the castle's construction began in 1482, following the arrival of the Portuguese on the Gold Coast in 1471. Under the rule of the Dutch, who took over the castle, waging war against the Portuguese, under the rule of the Dutch West Indies Company then, around 30,000 slaves a year passed through Elmina's door of no return. Right up until 1814, remember the War of 1814? Yeah. Or the War of 1812? When the Dutch slave trade, by the way, was abolished seven years after the British. All kinds of things happened around 1812 to 1814, didn't they? Today, 30-odd surviving forts, castles, and former trading posts can be found along Ghana's coast. (laughs) 
many bearing witness to the largest forced migration in history and to the atrocities humanity is capable of committing. More than just museums now, these castles are filled with haunting histories, revealing the horrors of the slave trade as strong reminder of Ghana's dark history. The castles then continue to pay respect to the millions of people who languished at the hands of slavers. But who were the slavers? We want to take a look at the history of slavery here today on Viewpoint. And Elmina Castle is one of the epicenters for what was known as the Atlantic slave trade. But you see, slave trade did not begin in the Atlantic. In fact, let's take a look at just uh, a sampling of some myths and facts concerning slavery. First of all, people are saying now that slavery is a product of capitalism. The reality is that slavery is older than the first human records. Long preceded what is now known as capitalism. Slavery is a product of Western civilization, we're told. No, slavery is virtually a universal institution throughout all of human history. Slaves were always subject to torture, sexual exploitation, and arbitrary death, no matter where they were, whether it was in Europe, in Rome, in Greece, in Persia, wherever they were. One myth is that the New World slaves came exclusively from West Africa. The reality, half of all the New World slaves came from Central Africa. How did they get from Central Africa to Elmina Castle and the other 29 castles along the coast of Ghana? We need to look at that. How did that happen? Europeans did engage in some slave slave raiding, but the majority of people who were transported to the Americas were enslaved by Africans in Africa. That just seems to be a casually overlooked fact. War was the most important source of enslavement. It would be incorrect to reduce all of those wars to slave raids, but in reality, war was the number one cause of providing slaves. And the wars were between the various tribes. Here's a myth. Most slaves were imported into what is now the United States. The fact is that well over 90% of the slaves from Africa were imported into the Caribbean and South America. Strange, isn't it? Truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. And today on Viewpoint, we're hopefully going to set the record straight concerning an awful lot of thoughts that we have in the Americas or we're told to have concerning the matter of slavery. And so I welcome you aboard. I'm Chuck Chris Myers. Conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. Believe it or not, the Democrat Party defended the right to own slaves as the party's founder, Andrew Jackson, himself owned slaves. 
Beginning in colonial times in America, approximately 350,000 African slaves were brought to America. A small number compared to those that were brought elsewhere through the world. But that number ultimately grew to 4 million slaves prior to the Civil War. Slaves were purchased at Muslim slave markets as well. Islam even defended the right to own slaves because its founder, Muhammad, owned slaves. In fact, beginning in 622 A.D., the next 1,400 years saw an estimated 180 million Africans enslaved in Islamic occupations. Amazing, isn't it? Utterly amazing. Again, the truth may be stranger than fiction. Today, we take a look at the truth concerning slavery. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismeyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Prior to the Civil War, the United States had two major political parties. They were called the Democrats and the Whigs. The Democrats favored freedom of choice to own slaves. But the Whigs ultimately became the Republican Party. The new political party, the Republican Party, that held its first state convention in Jackson, Michigan, on July 6, 1854, was called the Republican Party. The new political party took a stand against slavery. In fact, that was its principal reason for being formed. The new Republican Party was also against redefining marriage, allowing polygamy. So the chief plank of the original Republican Party platform was to prohibit those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy and slavery, that the Democrats were approving, in fact, fighting for. Did you know that? Did you know that? There was a Fugitive Slave Act that put the slavery issue squarely in face of the anti-slavery North, whereas before it had become an out-of-sight, out-of-mind issue occurring on southern plantations. The Fugitive Slave Law imposed severe penalties on those who aided escaped slaves with food or shelter in their passage to freedom in Michigan or Canada. It also made it a crime to interfere with the slave catcher's recovery of runaway slaves. A person could be held criminally liable find $1,000 and imprisoned for six months if they failed to report a neighbor suspected of helping slaves. Well, and who was it, what political party was it that embraced the Fugitive Slave Act? It was the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party. 
The Fugitive Slave Law mandate intensified sectional animosity in America, provoking the Civil War by requiring citizens who were against slavery to violate their consciences and take part in it. It was one thing for Northerners to be apathetic toward pro-choice Democrats enslaving people in the South, but it was quite another thing for them to be forced by federal mandate to dip their hands in the blood of the crime and participate in enforcing slavery. Hence, the Civil War. But that's just part of the picture. Today we want to go into the background. We want to go to a place called Elmina Castle on the west coast of Ghana. I have been there. In fact, just to give you a little bit of background here, my this my son-in-law, the husband of my oldest daughter, who is my much appreciated and necessary assistant, was born in Ghana. His father was a chief in Ghana. In Ghana, it is called the first Christian nation in Africa. Ghana. In fact, they have a phrase, Jinami, which is on the license plate of my son-in-law, and it means, but for God. But God or but for God. If you were to go to Ghana, you would find on the businesses the words of Scripture. You would find them everywhere. And you would say, wow, this must certainly be a Christian nation. Well, it depends on how you look at it. And if you want to go back in history, you will find some very excruciatingly contrary thoughts concerning Ghana. Just like you find excruciating contrary thoughts concerning whether or not America is a Christian nation or so on. In fact, if the truth were known, you might find some very excruciating thoughts brought to bear if your own life was revealed on public television tomorrow. They might be exceedingly excruciating. Because... History involves people, and people are not perfect. In fact, they are far from perfect. So far from perfect that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only begotten Son, full of grace and truth, to give you and me an opportunity to escape the bondage of sin. Because in reality, the scripture makes it very clear that every single one of us was born in sin. In sin did our mothers conceive us, and we are in slavery to sin. Now, you may not think of it that way, but that's how God thinks of it. He thinks of it as slavery. When he delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, he was delivering them from the house of bondage. That's what the Bible says. From the house of bondage, from the iron furnace, under Pharaoh. They had become slaves. And God heard their cry. And that was a type, using Israel as his chosen people, they became a type of all peoples who were given the opportunity through 
Christ then to be delivered from the house of bondage from Satan. Because you see, Pharaoh was a type of Satan, even the Antichrist himself. And he called out this question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Have you ever heard that cry in your own mind and heart? Have you ever thought those words, why should I obey that? Why should I do that? You may even profess to be a Christian, you and, and yet you differ from what God says. Do you know that when you do that, you are actually attesting to your bondage to sin? You're a slave. So this matter of slavery is more, far more, from God's perspective than what went on in America, that what went on with 180 million slaves in Muslim countries and so on, it's much bigger than that. It has to do with sin itself. It has to do with the fact that God, in his great love and mercy, having created us in his image, laments horribly what Adam did to yield to the enslaver. The enslaver, the serpent, the type of Satan himself. And look what we're doing today. We are yielding to exactly the same tempter, the same enslaver, even in God's own house, as we differ in various ways from the word, the will, and the ways of God. Now, if we're on the near edge of the second coming, this matter of slavery and slavery to sin has to be a very big deal because God is, Jesus is not going to come back for a bride who is enslaved to sin. You know how Paul referred to a bride with spot, wrinkle, or any such thing? That means you're a slave to sin. That's why we have to repent. And God gives us that great opportunity. Now, those who were caught in slavery in West Africa didn't have an opportunity to repent because they were caught in the vice grip of sinful human beings. And those sinful human beings were not just Europeans. They were Africans. They were West Africans and Central Africans. They were Africans. And if it had not been for the Africans, there would very likely have never been the kind of slavery that we now lament, whether it's in America or anywhere else coming from Africa. We wouldn't know about it because it happened because of the synergy of sin with African leaders and Europeans. Now, that having been said, we want to take a trip to Amina Castle. In 1471, the Portuguese, led by their captains, came to Amina. It's a little village, and uh, they were the first Europeans to arrive there. 1471. And when they first arrived, they wanted to establish their trade monopoly to protect their traders and their trade and to propagate Christianity. That's what they wanted to do. 
Did they do it really well? No. Have you been doing it very well? No. Have you been propagating your faith well? No. Most likely, no. So let's not get too much on their case. On January 1482, during the reign of the sixth chief of the land in Ghana, the Portuguese, in a fleet, 12 ships full of building materials and 600 workmen, came to negotiate for a piece of land and to build a fort, which eventually became what is known as the Elmina Castle, or St. George's Castle. It was the first time a title to land had been transferred by a West African chief to a European. Eleven years after the Portuguese had first visited Elmina, their castle was finally built, and it occupies an area of about 2.32 acres. Now, this is the area, friends, 2.32 acres, from which massive numbers of African people made in God's image were transported from their homeland to other lands. The Portuguese went ahead with their noble trade intentions until the early 16th century when the worst of crimes against the Africans started, and that was widely known as the transatlantic slave trade. An agreement was signed with some local chiefs in 1529. That agreement stated that when an African was caught trading with other Europeans apart from the Portuguese, he would be whipped and have an ear chopped off for the first time, and then it got, got more serious after that. On August 29, 1637, the Dutch then took control of the dungeons and castle called Elmina. They waged war against the Portuguese, won, and took dominion over the dungeons in Elmina Castle. The local people were never happy when the Dutch continued with the slave trade since they thought that the Dutch were a better alternative because prior to the takeover, the Dutch were not active in the slave trade. But the Dutch, when they took over the Elmina Castle, extended the dungeons and continued the transatlantic slave trade. So the British then took over the castle at the time the transatlantic slave trade had been abolished, and it almost completely stopped. So they used the castle as a sub-administrative center. Now let's go back to Elmina. It was the largest and the oldest existing castle connected to the transatlantic slave trade. Again, built in 1482, ten years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. The castle was isolated from the community with moats over which suspends a drawbridge that allowed no one to enter or leave the castle when it was lifted. In the main courtyard, all the rooms on the ground floor, except for two cells, became dungeons for male captives. On top of all the dungeons in the main courtyard were the residences for the soldiers, the merchants, and the pastor or priest. So that just gives a little bit of a picture there of what it was like. I've been there. There are no amenities there. There are no televisions. 
no running water, no food banks, nothing but dirt and stone. Let's talk a little bit about the slave trade. Slavery in one form or another has existence existed since the remotest times, not only in Africa, but also among the Jews, the Greeks, the Phoenicians, indeed every ancient society on the face of the earth. However, it was from Africa alone that millions upon millions of her people were forced across the Sahara Desert and across the Atlantic Ocean and scattered all over the world. Long before the coming of the foreigners to West Africa, local people in Ghana had a kind of slavery already in existed as well, and it's called indigenous slavery. Oh, I have a complete book on that from Ghana. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived, Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Slavery went two ways. One, to the Muslim world. The other, to the Western world. With the Muslims' conquest of North Africa and their conversion of North Africans to Islam, Africans south of the Sahara became victims in the slave trade, since Islamic laws forbid the Muslims from enslaving each other. The most needed items of trade included gold and Africans who ended up as slaves. Some of the Africans ended up then in Europe, especially Spain and Portugal, but most of them became domestic slaves in North Africa and Arabia. You don't hear about that, do you? And there's a reason. Because it doesn't can't be manipulated for political purposes in America. The Trans-Saharan trade took a nosedive from the end of the 16th to the 17th century, and because of the transatlantic trade, which shifted attention from the desert then to the coast. Then we get to Elmina Castle. The Portuguese started what generally became known as the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't the Americans, it was the Portuguese. They started capturing Africans 30 years before coming to Elmina Caps, uh, Castle and 41 years before the castle was even built. Then, since 1454, Spain was receiving about 250 Africans almost every year. In other words, it was becoming more and more of 
shall we say, the thing. Caribbean islands experienced Spanish brutalities, overwork, and European diseases decimated the indigenous population there, composed of Indians. So, guess what? Because the Indians were almost exterminated, there was then need to look for alternative sources of labor. So, a fellow by the name of Bartholomew de la Casas, a Dominican friar, suggested to the Spanish crown to arrange for Africans, who were much stronger and already working under similar climatic conditions, to replace the native Indians who were close to extinction. So the demands for Africans then started. And this is right about the very early 1500s. The Europeans alone could not have gone to all various places and to capture all Africans who went through the various dungeons of forts, lodges, and castles on the West African coast. Remember, there were about 30,000 a year coming through Elmina Castle alone and being shipped out. So, there were three main ways of getting captives. Europeans captured Africans, that's one way. Europeans collaborated with Africans to get other Africans. That was the second way. And then the third way was Africans known as slave raiders captured other Africans and sold them to African merchants who in turn sold them to the Europeans. So in other words, there was, you talk about capitalism, the capitalism that actually motivated, originally motivated, and was at the very heart of slavery was Double whammy African capitalism. You had the raiders who went and grabbed slaves. Then they sold them to other Africans who made money on them and sold them to the Europeans. But that's not the whole story. The most common or notorious way of getting captives was wars and the effect of wars. When a tribe was defeated in war, prisoners of war were taken captive. So if during a year the defeated tribe had not gotten enough people by way of those who had committed offenses to sell as slaves, then this tribe had to go into war with another supposedly weaker tribe. In other words, they used war to gain more captives to sell to the Europeans. And if the defeated tribe could not meet the demand, then they had to go to war with others as well. So the cycle intensified of warfare among the tribes in Africa and throughout Africa that brought in more and more captives. Can you see the wickedness of this? This was not just driven by the Europeans. This was a capitalistic system. It wasn't capitalism that created the problem, though. It was the wicked hearts of men. Capitalism in and of itself is not wicked. As people try to make it out to be. When considering that he or she had been captured from places well over 300 miles from the coast, these people, captives, were put in chains and forced to walk sometimes for months 
just to get to the coast, and a lot of them didn't make it. Now, back to Elmina Castle. When the captives were brought to the Elmina Castle, they were taken to the old Portuguese church, which during the Dutch time had become the slave auctioning hall. After being examined, the captives were taken to the dungeons. The men were separated from the women, and the coast of West Africa had become notoriously termed the white man's grave due to the rate at which the Europeans died of very common diseases such as malaria and yellow fever. So you see, it wasn't just the people, the Europeans, that brought disease to the Caribbean or Central or South America. It was the Europeans that were dying like flies in Africa. In fact, Europeans saw being posted on the West African coast as serious punishment. Unfortunately, the Africans in the dungeons did not come from today's Ghana alone, but also from Togo, Burkina Faso, the Ivory Coast, and all kinds of other places. In other words, this was an African endeavor. Horrible. When the ships came, the men and women finally entered a room now known as the Room of No Return. Captives were now not moving freely since they were in chains and chained to each other. These chains, they went through a very short door. I have been there, seen it's a low, low little door. You had to crouch to get through it, from which they were made to exit through a door now known as the door of no return. And finally, they would go down, uh, some would say it was a ladder, I would call it a slide. And they had to go down to the sea to begin the most dreadful, despicable journey known in the, in the earth, called the Middle Passage. Describing the passage, the journey of the African slaves, captives, across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe, the Caribbean, America, and all their places the Africans ended up. That was the worst leg of the captive's journey. It was horrible. It was recorded in the case of one ship that for 700 captives that were taken on that ship, only half survived, meaning that 350 died just in the passage. A slave ship captain at a fact-finding commission later was asked how comfortable a captive could be during the Middle Passage, and he replied that a captive could be as comfortable as a man could be in his coffin. Why? Because the people were laid shoulder to shoulder, in fact reversed, so that he could maximize the number of people laid side to side, and they had to endure in that way, chained down for the entire passage across the seas. In 1807, an act of Parliament outlawed the slave trade for the British subjects. Finally, by an act in 1833, slavery was abolished in all the British Empire, but the British were not the only nation to abolish the trade. The United States followed suit in 1808, Sweden in 1813, Netherlands in 1814, Portugal in 1815, Spain in 1817, France in 1818, and Brazil in 1825. Yet, 
because human beings are sinful, the illegal slave trade even continued to occur. An illegal slave trade existed from when the trade was officially abolished until the 1880s. Now, that is a distilled history, friends, of slavery, particularly around surrounding the Elmina Castle. As I said, I have been there. It is a horrific place. And you can well understand the pathos of those African people taken captive, not just by the Europeans, but by their own people. Different tribes trying to get a one-upsmanship on another tribe and all trying to make money for power, perks, and position for their own tribe, for their own power, for their own glory. It was a coordinated effort of Africans and Europeans, and yes, indeed, of Muslims. When we get back, we're going to take a look at the residue of that in America. Are you sure you want to hear about this? Are you sure? It might be more revealing than you care to admit. It just might. The British administration in Asante, Africa, Ghana, and the Northern Territories spent the whole of 1906 formulating laws that would effectively end the institution of slavery. The proposed laws were discussed not only among the officials and the governor, but also among the chiefs, that is, the African chiefs and elders. Toward the end of 1906, the chiefs and elders of Adansi wrote to the commissioner protesting against the British administration's proposed laws to abolish indigenous slavery. Really? The Africans were against abolishing slavery? Absolutely. We'll be back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Can you imagine 30,000 people a year being hoarded taken in chains and hoarded through, sometimes having to wait for weeks, sometimes even months, 
in horrific conditions. Many of them died just laying one next to the other in Elmina Castle. We could call it the Elmina Castle catastrophe. Right there in West Africa, Ghana. A nation that is seen as Africa's first Christian nation. Now, are you going to demean the claim that Ghana is uh, Africa's first Christian nation because it was the epicenter of the African trade, slavery? Are you going to diminish the entirety of America and its history because America also had slaves? Every country in the world has had slaves. Even Israel. Sorry, even Israel. They couldn't take their own people as slaves, but they certainly could enslave others. Is it God's will, God's desire? No. God knows that humankind is sinful beyond all imagination. Who can know it? And we have an opportunity to face the truth concerning our condition, the condition of our forebears, the condition of the whole earth, where we are held captive in bondage to sin. Whenever we echo the words of Pharaoh, a type of the Antichrist and of Satan himself, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We are actually confessing our continual bondage to sin and our willingness to enslave others to the same bondage because we're encouraging them to believe like we do, contrary to the freedom that God wants to give us in Christ. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Satan says, no, that doesn't work in my kingdom. No, I'm going to show you how to get everything you want at the expense of somebody else. That's what slavery is at its root. Did the Africans want to get rid of slavery? Well, let's find out. I have in my hands a book called the uh, History of Indigenous Slavery in Ghana from the 15th to the 19th century. Now, because Africans don't really want to admit how much of slavery, real slavery, slavery was, they want to kind of dance around and explain different kinds of slavery. But in reality, it was all slavery. So, when the British administration in Ghana, during the whole of 1906, tried to formulate laws that would get rid of slavery, and they discussed these proposals among officials, the governor, and also among the Ghanaian chiefs and elders. Here's what the chiefs and elders of Adanse 
wrote to the commissioner, the British commissioner, protesting against the British administration's proposed laws to abolish indigenous slavery. In other words, slavery that wasn't about the trafficking and selling to others, but slavery that was actually a part of the culture of Ghana itself. Here's what they said. I'm reading a quote. The freedom of every slave we beg to say that it is impossible for we Ashantis to do. What could the kings, the chiefs, and headmen do if these are all set free? All our drums, blowing horns, swords, elephants' tails, basket-carrying and farming are done by them, as we have no money like Europeans to do necessaries for us. And how can we kings and chiefs attend any calling by the government while we are have nobody to carry us, beat our drums, blow our horns, carry our swords, and other necessary things? In other words... They were totally dependent upon the slavery of their own people. So the district commissioner, British District Commissioner Soden, followed up above the protest and advised the chief commissioner not to be too hasty in demanding complete abolition of indigenous slavery in Ghana because the chiefs and headmen in Asante would be in great difficulty. Friends, that's exactly what happened in America. Slavery had become so endemic to the culture, to agriculture, to every aspect, that they couldn't just immediately terminate, even though they didn't agree with it. So they tried to find a way. Our our leaders, our, our forebears tried to find a way to gradually get rid of the practice of slavery. Not suddenly, but gradually. Whether it's George Washington and others, to sell their slaves, to get rid of their slaves, to free their slaves, rather, not sell them, to free them. The British commissioner suggested that abolition be carried out gradually over a period of two decades or more. Why? Because the African chieftains demanded it. They didn't know how they were going to live or function within their own culture without slavery. Let me go on. The abolition process was a very tedious one for the British officials in Ghana. They had to contend with both the Atlantic system and the indigenous institution. After concentrating their efforts on the Atlantic system for several decades, they attempted to deal with the indigenous slavery. It was difficult for the age-old institution in Africa to die out completely in spite of the enactment of laws and punishment for the offenders. The British government passed, quote, the Abolition of Slavery Declaration Ordinance in 1928 to deal with the legal status of slavery. Here was the result. Listen carefully. Even after this ordinance was passed, 
Cases dealing with one's servile origins came up time and again in the traditional and regular courts in Africa, in Ghana. The issue of slavery continues to be raised periodically in the traditional and regular courts with respect to chieftaincy, disputes, social status, inheritance, and land tenure. And this was not slavery conducted by white guys. That was slavery conducted indigenous to Africa and, in particular, Ghana. We all need to admit these things. It doesn't do any good to dance around and play pretend like a two-year-old and put our hands over our eyes and say, look, God, look, Ma, look, world, you can't see me. How about just coming clean? We might just actually get some freedom. We might actually be able to get some air that we can breathe even in our country and realize it's not all about racism. Slavery was indigenous to Africa itself. And even to a country that became known as the first Christian country in Africa, Ghana, whose motto is Jinami, meaning but God or but for God. Now, So what's happened in this country? Well, it doesn't take a Philadelphia lawyer to figure it out. It goes back to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. When the Democrat Party could not win the issue of keeping the black uh, population in America under control and outside the scope of general American life, Lyndon Johnson had what he thought was a better idea. We'll enslave them through a welfare state. That's right, he did. He conceived it for that purpose. He called it the war on poverty. No, friends, it was not a war on poverty. It was a war to create more poverty and to absolutely control the African heritage in this country so as to keep them in perpetual bondage to the Democrat Party through promises of money. And if the father wasn't present in the home, the strong church-centered black families and neighborhoods would collapse because they couldn't get the welfare money. At that time, when that started, LBG's war on poverty, less than 2% of the federal budget was on welfare spending. 50 years later, it was 27% of the federal budget. Before LG Bay's war on poverty, less than 5% of the children were born to unmarried parents. 50 years later, it skyrocketed to 40%. And today, before, well, let's just go further. Uh, Before LBJ's war on poverty, less than 10% of U.S. children lived in single-parent households. 50 years later, it exploded to 33%. In 1965, 25% of all black children were born illegitimately. Now it's over 70%. All 
induced, seduced by a wicked form of slavery, economic slavery, to to push upon the black community to be utterly and totally addicted to the largesse of a political party to gain power and perks and position for that party. And what's even more wicked about it is that many black pastors are helping to facilitate that bondage for their own power, perks, and position. Having linked with the slave traders in Washington. Are we making any sense yet? Do you think that God is happy about this? No way. You want to find out what's happened to the black family in America? Go to our website, saveus.org. Look on the fact sheets and under one called A Portrait of the Black Family. Ever since the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and LBJ's War on Poverty beginning, Even a black leader in San Francisco of a black think tank stated in Ebony magazine several years ago that the demolition demolition of the black family had occurred more at that time in the 14 generations since decades since slavery than in all previous times together. Why? Because the Democrat Party is dedicated to the destruction of black America. The continual enslavement for their own power, perks, and position. You think I'm happy about that? No way. Do you think God's happy about that? No way. The tragic irony. Dependency on government entitlements is reminiscent of the dependency on southern Democrat plantations where slaves waited for handouts from their masters. Mm. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner, friend, send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries. Do it today. Don't delay. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.